0: Hey, good morning. If you would, please, would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for all that you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. Would you now speak, Father, to your people in your word, by your spirit, as we have confessed through the finished work of your Son, Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts and souls and minds to receive. You are worth our soul's affection and our mind's attention. So we pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. We're going to start this morning by reading our passage for the morning. And then we'll try to walk through it, unpack it, see how we can apply it. And then we'll be out of here right about 3 p.m., all right? So there's a lot here, but we're just going to do the opening greeting of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, And our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord." This is God's very word. We've started a new sermon series this uh, fall semester that, Lord willing, will take us all the way through into the spring semester of next year. We're going to be here for a while, and it's important that we understand some context, some backstory, some backdrop for this epistle written by the Apostle Paul to the people of the church in Corinth. Corinth. We need to understand kind of the situation, the circumstances, the dynamics. I want you to imagine an urban church situated perhaps in the center of a city, maybe, maybe in a really crazy eclectic area, something maybe San Francisco, New York City, Miami, Los Angeles, all those kinds of things. What challenges would a church like that face in a context like that? I mean, sure, they're gonna have to deal with and wrestle through all the issues of ministry programming and budgets and trying to have enough going on and yet also trying to have a good enough reputation and witness in the community. And they're also gonna try to make sure they figure out ways so that the associate pastor doesn't call the congregation stupid. All of the things that you've gotta do in churches, it's really hard, there's a lot going on there trying to provide ministry, programming, all those kinds of things so that we can really feel like, you know, we're doing what a church is supposed to do. And at the same time, trying to be somewhat culturally relevant, not too terribly offensive, all of those things, and yet still trying to figure out ways to thrive, not just survive. And then, of course, there's this issue that they're having to deal with, of course, in those contexts, the issue of worldliness. Every church in the history of the church has had to deal with Worldliness. Worldliness is one of those great problems that plagues persistently the church then and now. Here's how I define worldliness worldliness is when unrighteousness is normal and righteousness looks odd. Now, I don't mean merely morality and good behavior. I mean righteousness. I mean the ethic, the philosophy of the king of heaven, when that seems strange, but to operate against the philosophy or the ethic or the aesthetic of heaven, that seems totally normal. This worldliness is a thing that affects and infects potentially every church. And so... It is one of the great, great themes, one of the master themes that really peppers and seasons every epistle in the New Testament. Because every church since the inception of the church has had to fight through this issue of worldliness. At the end of the writing of the New Testament, the apostle John is an old guy sitting in a cave on the island of Patmos and Jesus himself appears to John and says, write these things down. And he personally dictates seven letters to seven churches. And in every single one of them, Jesus is admonishing them for how they are dealing with worldliness. Now that's instructive because while we are in the world, The church is to be out of the world in a sense, at least culturally, philosophically, ethically, and even, I would say, aesthetically. It is to be a little bit different. Well, the more things change, the more things stay the same. As far as worldliness and the world's wisdom entering the church, not all that much has changed. We've gotten a little bit more efficient at integrating it and making it tolerable so that we can do our best to seem hip or cool or culturally relevant and seeker-sensitive, but how do we deal with that? How do we strike that balance? We can't stop all the ideas from coming at us, and the people of God have never been called to walk around with their hands over their eyes or over their ears going blah, blah, blah. We are going to be affected and impacted by all these things all the time. But we read the epistles of the New Testament, and we are reminded repeatedly that the point of this place the point of every church that gathers together to worship. The point of the place is the gospel. It's the gospel. Not just doctrine and Bible trivia. Not just programming to keep us busy, make us feel like we're trying really hard. The point of this place is grace. And so, our big idea for this morning comes right out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It goes like this. The church is the society of grace. I don't know if that's what you think about when you think about church, but I will challenge you, biblically, scripturally, and spiritually, that is how we are to think of the church. It is the society of grace. Now, remember, we are in the book of 1 Corinthians. Our working theme for the book of 1 Corinthians is imperfect church, perfect gospel. Just a very quick reminder. Remember, we learn about the planting of the church in Corinth from Acts chapter 18. On the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey, he goes through Philippi, then Thessalonica, then Berea, then Athens, and then finally down to Corinth. And he's out of gas, he's on fumes, he's beat down, and he's all alone. But God provides some assistance. A man named Priscilla and a lady named Aquila. They are a couple. They're Jews, but they are believers. And they minister to Paul. They sort of nurture him back to health because Paul is in enemy territory, we might say. The city of Corinth is massive. It's got a population of at least 200 to 250,000 people, not to mention the subhuman population. There's at least 400,000 or so slaves. So you've got a population of somewhere around 600 to 650,000 people. The city of Athens at this time has about 10,000 people. That's right, Athens, ancient Greece. Athens, East Texas, about the same size, same number of Dairy Queens. And so it was no wonder Paul was eager to get out of there. A dilly bar, that's enough, you gotta go. Corinth was huge. Corinth had two seaports, one on the east and one on the west. You would sail in from the west, and you didn't want to have to try to sail all the way around, as you can see on this map, around the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And so they would just carry your boat across with slave labor. That's why they had so many slaves, to actually put your boat fully laden with cargo, and they would drag it across logs for miles. Now, Emperor Nero tried to dig a canal to actually open that little isthmus up. He failed. Many hundreds of years later, they finally did put a canal, and you can sail a boat through there so you're not having to carry your boat across, but that's the importance of Corinth. There's archaeology there from 3,000 BC. It's over 5,000 years old. That tells you how critical it was for sea trade and all kinds of commerce. Every bit of commerce in the Roman Empire would either go north-south through there or east-west through there. The Roman Empire, seeing that they're staunchly loyal to Greece, completely obliterated it, raised it to the ground in about 149 B.C., but they realized it was so critically important that Julius Caesar rebuilt it from scratch in 44 B.C. and made the citizens there full Roman citizens Had 12 different temples, 12, the most popular of which was the Temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. Now, in terms of a competitive market goes, there's all these other temples. There's the temple of Poseidon for sea voyages. There's the temple of Apollo. He was the god of the sun. There was a the temple of Hephaestus, who was the, the metal workers guild. All of these things are templed up to, to Zeus and Athena. But the temple of Aphrodite was the most popular. And here's a quick little, I can say this in the first service. Second service, be a little bit more G-rated. In the temple of Aphrodite, they employed 1,000 sacred prostitutes. And what you would do as a worshiper is you would go and make a financial offering, and then you would engage in a worship activity with a partner that you selected. And you would, in that intimate encounter, you would have, and there was a very technical expression, you would have fellowship with Aphrodite. No wonder the temple of Aphrodite was way more popular than the temple of, you know, Hephaestus. You can either go and learn to weld or you can go have a hookup. All right? It's just great marketing. I'm just going to tell you, not, praise God, the churches don't operate that way today. I'm just saying, back then, that's how they, and so this is the place into which the Apostle Paul comes. Now, Paul is out of gas when he comes into Corinth. He'd started his first missionary journey with a triumphal entry. He goes to the island of Cyprus and he casts down this sort of pagan magician. He converts the Roman governor, Sergius Paulus, and he's the man. He goes into Galatia with all of this aggression and all of this uh, fervor. He does his second missionary journey, and things begin to go down rather rapidly. He has to use his faith and his his exposition in Philippi and Thessalonica. He has to use his intellect in Athens. But by the time he comes to Corinth, he's utterly beaten. He's exhausted. He's weak. And God says, that is precisely the way that I want to have you. This is how I'm going to use you, Paul, in your depression, in your discouragement. Now, there's some things that are going on in the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is remarkable because the book of Ephesians, a masterwork of Paul, the crown of Paul's theology, the book of Ephesians is really about the universal church, the church all over the world through space and time. But 1 Corinthians is about the local church. So we kind of have to keep that in mind interpretively or you'll think there's some contradictions or some conflicts. There aren't. Ephesians is dealing with the church universal. 1 Corinthians is dealing with the local church. Very big and very important. Now, We have to remember that Paul was reasoning in the synagogue in Corinth for about three months every Saturday, working as a tent maker with his friends Priscilla and Aquila. After three months, Silas and Timothy come down from Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea, and they bring a financial gift, which enables Paul to put down his tools and to begin proclaiming and defending and declaring that Jesus is the Christ every day of the week. He finally goes back to the synagogue. They reject him. So Paul moves next door and goes to the house of a man named Gaius or Titius Justice. Now, here's what's going on. Paul finishes off his second missionary journey there in Corinth. He sails to Ephesus just for a few days and then goes all the way to Antioch. He restarts his third missionary journey. He goes all the way through the churches of Galatia again, and he plops down in Ephesus, where he stays in Ephesus for about three years While he's in Ephesus, he gets a report about the church in Corinth. And he goes, (whistles) that's a quote. Things are very, very bad in Corinth. Somebody gives him a report or a letter we don't know and tells him that things are really messed up in Corinth. And so Paul writes them a letter. We don't have that letter it was either not inspired or it didn't survive or whatever. We don't have that letter. What we do know is that letter was not well received. They write back with a letter of their own, and they essentially say, it's in Greek, but in Greek it says, "nah," and they do not repent. And so Paul sits down, and he writes them another letter. It's actually his second letter. That's the only one that we have. We have second letter, which actually is 1 Corinthians. Now stick with me the second letter, but we have not We call it 1 Corinthians. He sends that letter. They respond again, also not repenting. In fact, they have more questions and they begin to question his authority and his apostleship. So he writes them a third letter. He calls it the painful or the sorrowful or the grievous letter. He says, I hated to write it. I wrote it with many tears. And we don't have that one either. <laughs> we don't have that one either. It's, just, it's either lost the time, wasn't inspired. We don't know. But apparently one of my old professors used to say, we don't have that letter because Paul cussed them so severely. I don't know. So this time they finally do repent. Titus comes and brings a report to Paul and says, hey, this time they got it. And so Paul writes to them yet a fourth letter. That one we have. That's what we call 2 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians. We don't have the first and third. What we have is 4 Corinthians, which is actually 2 Corinthians, but it's really the fourth letter. Are you with me? So I want you to have all this. It's really fascinating that Paul writes to them at least four times we don't have any other church to which he writes that often and that much material. Just so you know, your New Testament, the arrangement of the books is not inspired. The arrangement of the books is just centuries and centuries ago, somebody said, hey, let's put them in order of longest to shortest, all of Paul's books, and let's put the rest of them in order from longest to shortest that are not Paul's books. So 13 of Paul's epistles, Starts with Romans. The next one is 1 Corinthians. So that tells you a lot. There's a lot of material here 16 chapters. So there's a lot of stuff we need to learn in 1 Corinthians. We can understand how we are to combat worldliness. And remember, our big idea, the church is the society of grace. Now, if you take all of Paul's letters and you pin them to the wall and you look at all of his openings and greetings, what's the, called the salutation, if you were to look at all 13 of them side by side and have a really interesting pattern emerges, you just kind of have to sometimes zoom way back to see the forest before you start to really investigate the trees. And if you look at all of his 13 openings, what you begin to see is every single letter tells you what he's going to say in the letter. And you can decide and you can discern and you can, you can sort of detect there are differences in each opening. And each letter is going to say, hey, this is what I'm going to address. This is what I'm going to deal with. And so those nine verses that we've already read are essentially giving you the table of contents for the rest of the book. Even though it's very subtle, that first opening, that greeting, nine verses, there are no imperatives, no instructions, no to-dos. Some of you come from different denominational backgrounds and you're like, "Uh uh-huh, cute, whatever. Tell me what to do. No! Not till about chapter seven. (laughs) You're gonna have to just wait and just be barraged and battered by the brilliance of the grace of the gospel of what God has done, of what God has done, of what God has said, of what God has purposed, of what God is up to. And you just receive, you just receive, you just believe, you just believe. Oh, chapter seven, you go, oh, oh, who I am is actually functionally different now. And then you behave differently. This is how Paul writes, trying to equip, energize, and encourage the church, which is the society of grace. Now, I know I say this all the time, but that's just because it's true, and it's bedrock, and it's baseline, and it's super important. This letter was written by a person to some people at a place in a period for a purpose. And this personal letter was inspired by the Spirit of God. I want you to understand that. Must understand that it's not just a conveyance, it's not just a correspondence, it is literally the third member of the Godhead Trinity wanting to communicate, connect, and convey truth to these particular people. And we have to know what God was wanting them to understand because it's literally God communicating to them in a contextualized way that they can receive and they can believe. Why am I yant- ranting about this? Because I had dinner with a friend of mine not too long ago, a few days ago, he's a pastor in another town, and he said, Gosh. You guys and all that exposition stuff. Because nobody wants to hear that. They just need a couple of good stories, and you just tell them what to do. And so then I joked him out. I just, just watched him just right on down, and then I just finished him up. I so fervently, so animatedly disagree. My words, as you all well know, have precisely zero power. But when God speaks, things like, oh, I don't know, let there be light tend to happen. And so we spend some time walking through what is it that God says in this little letter. And it's inspired from the first letter. When it says, Paul, remember, this is Saul of Tarsus, flicked off his horse in Acts chapter 9. Now he's an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul, Paulus in Latin, it means little, it means diminutive. Oh, you, you, you think you're the man in your first missionary journey, right? Now you're discouraged. Now you're in depression. Now you feel defeated, Paul. And remember, this first nine verses is the table of contents for the rest of the book. He's going to explain what he's going to say for the rest of the entire letter. Paul, called by the will of God. Now, this word called, kaleo, is more like the idea of summonsed. It was said that when the queen of England summoned you to tea, it didn't matter if you were having open heart surgery, you zipped up and you went. It was not optional. It wasn't a request. It was a summons. The sovereign of the land summonsed you and you respond. You're going to see this word called again and again and again. That's important. That helps us to understand like, uh, like a Rosetta Stone for the rest of the book, Paul called. I was summoned. This was God's idea. Why is he saying this? Because they were beginning to question that. They didn't believe that maybe he was who he said he was, or maybe there was something else, or maybe there was someone more. No, no. I was called. I was summonsed by the will of God, sovereign God. Remember, he's talking to people who were in a Greek context, who were uh, the products of their Greek mythologies. But only 300 years earlier, a man named Socrates, or as some call him, Socrates, Socrates had died. Why? They forced him to drink hemlock. How come? Because he said there's only one God. And that would not abide because it messed up their entire economic system. Socrates said, not that he was a Christian, he was not, but Socrates said, by definition, if there is such a thing as a God, there can only be one by definition. He was onto something. And so Paul is hearkening back to hey, there is a God, but there is one. And I'm an apostle called by the will of God to be an apostle, a sent one. This was not my idea. This was not just a fallback plan in case that whole Pharisee gig didn't work out. I was going hard in the wrong direction, murdering Christians, and then Jesus went and turned me. Just in case you think this is my idea or my imagination or my machinations, Paul says, no, no, Corinthians, pay attention. I am called by the will of God to be an apostle, a sent one. And he uses the official term. We're all, in a sense, apostles. Paul held the office. means you have to have gotten direct revelation from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We get that here in Corinthians and later in Galatians. That's the office of apostle. You have to have direct revelation from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And (laughs) our brother Sosthenes. Now, this is absolutely awesome. Those of you who were here last week or haven't slept since then, you might remember we walked through Acts 18 last Sunday, just sort of as an on-ramp to get this series started. In Acts 18, we have a man named Crispus. Crispus is the president of the synagogue. That means he has the keys to the closet of the Torah. That means he's pretty influential, pretty affluent. And Paul gives them the gospel, tells them that the Christ is Jesus. They won't listen. They reject him. He says, fine, I'm leaving, and he goes next door, to the house of a man named Gaius, or Titius Justus. Well, that apparently was a big deal, and so Crispus, the synagogue leader, he gets converted, him and his whole household, to Christianity, and so they name a new synagogue ruler, a guy named Sosthenes. (laughs) Sosthenes, first day on the job, puts his stapler right there in the corner of his desk, and then he grabs Paul and drags him to the Roman government to place him before the Bema throne judgment seat there in Corinth to try to get Paul kicked off of the land, to have him banished from the whole property. But Gallio, the proconsul, doesn't side with the Jews. He says, I'm not ruling on this. And so all of the crowd gathered around, they grabbed Sosthenes and they beat him. <laughs> this is a bad first day on the job. He's like, I liked it better when I was vice president of the synagogue. This whole president thing's not so good. So they beat Sosthenes. One of my old heroes in the faith, Charles Ryrie, puts in his study Bible notes, perhaps he needed a good beating to come to faith. That was me. I don't know if you. Some of us just need a real good beating before we finally come to faith. I don't know. Sosthenes apparently is converted. Paul finishes that second missionary journey, goes back to Antioch, A couple years go by, Paul is sitting in Ephesus. Apparently, Sosthenes goes to Ephesus, where 1 Corinthians, which is actually his second letter, where that's written in Ephesus around 55 AD. Sosthenes goes to Paul in Ephesus. All of his training as an administrator, as a synagogue ruler, comes in real handy when the apostle Paul is dictating. So Paul puts Sosthenes in the position of the scribe, the one who is actually recording this for him. Paul starts the letter because he wants him to know. This is what God does. He takes enemies and turns them into children. I was murdering Christians. My name was Saul of Tarsus. I'm guilty. Blood on my hands. Sosthenes was trying to kill me. Guess what? We're both now serving Jesus, and he's my brother. Now, can that happen? Somebody who's an enemy of the cross of Christ gets radically converted, and previous enemies become siblings. Yes! My God, yes! And that's the church, because the church is the society of grace. And the moment we forget that that is what God's plan and his heartbeat is, then we merely become some secular club that occasionally does some nice things in the community. And that's not an eternal body. That's not an everlasting group. The church is the society of grace. I'm in verse one. Okay, here we go. <laughs> and our brother, Sosthenes, we were both called, not our plan, God's doing a thing. Even though we might not recognize it, realize it, appreciate it, God's doing a thing. Verse 2. To the church of God. Whose church is it? Well, it's God's church. Now, I've heard people super sweetly try to say, well, it's not my church, it's God's church. It's okay. In the English language, the word my can have different connotations. You can say it's my church because it's my church. It's where I attend. It's where I'm a member. It's my church. You don't own it, but it's your affiliation, your association, and it's your obligation. It's okay, but it is owned by, it is God's church, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Please notice, their everlasting and eternal reality supersedes their geographic address. (laughs) And every single time, to the church at Philippi, to the saints at Philippi, to the saints at Ephesus, your everlasting address supersedes your geographic temporal address, and we would be well advised to remember that We say it all the time. You're you're from the future. You happen to live in the present, but you're from the future. That's how God thinks of, knows you, and loves you, is you're from the future to the church of God that happens to be in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. By the way, there is no other way to be sanctified. You are forensically, judicially seen by God to be in his own dear son, Jesus Christ. Now, I know it's a churchy word, and I, and I get that, but we got to spend a little bit of time talking about sanctification. It's holification. It, it is the process by which God conforms us to the image of his son. We have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. That is our position. It never improves, it never deteriorates. We have been saved from sin. The penalty is removed. God could not possibly love you or me any more than he does right now. We are being saved from the power of sin. Have you noticed it's still got a little bit of a tug on you? If you haven't noticed, I keep notes. I'll tell you. I know all the it. No, I'm kidding. I don't, only, only a few of you do I know. That is our progressive sanctification. We've been freed from the penalty. We've been freed from the power. This is our progressive. As we are being conformed to the image of the Son, one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. Sin is anything that proceeds apart from faith. Faith will become sight. There will be no more sin. Won't that be nice? Because I tell you, I live my life uphill into the wind, no shoes, both ways, all the time when it comes to sin. But there's coming a day when the presence of sin will be removed. That is our permanent sanctification. And that's how God sees us right now. And this is what he says, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus... Called, summoned, just like Paul was. You've been summoned here. This wasn't your idea. Jesus has done this. Called together to be saints with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the local church, but by the way, That's happening everywhere. The great, great, great common denominator in everybody who gathers to declare the excellencies of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a plural thing. It's an us thing. Your conversion, your salvation was never to be an individual issue. Oh, sure, it is an individual activity. God saves you, but always to somebody else. Ever since the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, there has been separation, there has been delineation, there has been distance and divide between just about every conceivable relationship. But the gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Now that's a marvelous truth we have to all be reminded of because the church is the society of grace. We are connected to every other believer in space, who is on the world today, a population of 8 billion people, we're told conservatively in the nation of India, there may be as many as 650 million Christians. In the nation of China, there may be as many as 500 million Christians. In America, we have 365 million humans. There are vastly more Christians in India and in China than there are Americans in America. What am I saying? Heaven's going to be very brunette. We we have an opportunity to rethink our thinking and to be bound and connected and united to saints through space and time. This is why we do confession and assurance and communion and doxology every time because it's who we are forever and ever and ever. I know it's a bit tedious every morning when we come together on a Sunday to have communion and to say the thing. We are in Christ, and we will be forever and ever, and it is our expression of that reality that the church is the society of grace. They call in the name of their Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, and then his customary greeting, grace to you and peace, always in that order, only in that order. In fact, biblically, you and I cannot have peace until we have received Grace. Somebody outside of us has to do a thing for us. Unmerited favor from an unobligated giver is the only way you and I can ever actually have peace. Not better education, not a better economy, not bringing all of our soldiers home, not lowering gas and milk prices. Nope, the only way you and I can ever have peace is if we have received grace. And the church is the society of grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's sitting in Ephesus. It was said, all roads lead to Rome, but all roads lead from Ephesus. And he's writing to Corinth. This is treason. By the way, can I remind you that at this point, emperor is Nero, who will end up taking Paul's head. Nero's official title was Nero, son of God, savior of the world. And Paul writes officially, in print, no, no, no. God is our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Game on, baby. My loyalty is with the everlasting King of Kings, who was a death-proof king, incidentally. Nero, you're kind of creepy. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. Wow, you read this opening, you think this church must be awesome they're killing it. They're crushing it. They're they're giving as high their participation. They got a waiting list for people wanting to serve in children's ministry. Wow. Well, we'll see more of that. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, this is amazing. When Paul thinks of this church, and he knows all that's going on there, by the way, this is already his second letter after a second report of all the jacked-upness that's going on there. We'll talk about those things in the days and weeks to come. But when he thinks about them, his attitude is gratitude. Now, let me just let me just convict you a touch. When you think about church on the whole, or your church in particular, is your attitude gratitude? Candidly. Probably not. When you think about church or your church, candidly, probably, transparently, probably what you think of is all the things that you wish were better or different or like the church in which you grew up. But Paul says, when I think of you, my attitude is gratitude because of the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, it misses some punch in English. This is a legal expression. Paul is saying, what you received, God cannot do. God cannot forgive. He cannot, he cannot give you, he can't. It would, it's illegal in the throne room of heaven. It's illegal. It would violate his justice and his judgment. God is a God of wrath and of justice and of righteousness. He cannot merely let bygones be bygones. He can't simply look the other way. That would serve to un-God God. And that is the one thing he cannot do. He cannot forgive you. He can't unless, unless somebody else bears the full weight and punishment innocently for you and for me. Now that's the gospel. Hopefully you've heard that before. But more profound, (laughs) that's how Paul thinks of everybody else. Now that got me this week. When I think about my church, I don't think that guy is here because Jesus said, I will take all of his thoughts, his words, his deeds, all of it. Nail, here, please. I don't look at you all that way. Not often enough. But Paul says we are the society of grace. We are to look at one another and go, Ah, oh, you, you have been summoned in Christ. God did not ungod himself. He sent the sendable self, his own son, to bear as our substitute and in our place. And I'm so thankful. And he's not just done it there. He's done it all over the world for thousands of years. And Paul's heart just bursts. Can church people be a little irritating? Don't answer that. But is our attitude one of gratitude? Look what God is doing. These are eternal, everlasting, never-to-die souls that I will never again for all eternity not know. Ha, Gratitude, because the church is a society of grace. That in every way, he says in verse five, you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. Now this may not seem like that big of a deal because Paul's saying you've been completely lotterified. You you hit the lottery. You didn't even pull the crank. You, you've been enriched in every way, and they went, uh, I don't feel very rich. And that's, Paul says, that's because you're still thinking about the here and now. You're from the future. You're thinking the currency of the empire is the denarius, the Roman coin for a day's wage. You're thinking it's a talent of silver or a talent of gold. That's dust. The currency of the kingdom of heaven is righteousness. Righteousness. And when you were converted, when you believed, God Himself in Christ flushed you. The Gospel of Luke says He filled your basket with grain, He shook it, and then He poured more in, and then He pressed it down. You are completely a trillionaire of the only currency that will ever matter for all eternity, and that is righteousness. You have it already. Why? He's setting the stage for the next 15 chapters. Why are you grasping for more? Why are you trying to assert yourself over anybody else? You've been enriched, enriched already in speech and knowledge, ah, in the logos, in, in the way that you communicate and in knowledge. This is a very Greek context, and the things that you know. And the Greeks were so heck, just imagine a society like this, a culture like this, the Greeks really believed that the more they knew, the better they'd be. Really? It really, so the, so, the, so the smarter you get, the less you sin. Seriously, how's that working out for you? I spent a lot of time in school, A, because I'm not very bright, B, because I was distracted, hard for you to imagine, I know. Didn't affect my sin nature in the slightest. In fact, it just sort of poured more diesel in the engine. I was like, oh, I just invited and invented more ways of sinning. Yes! Now, your problem is not a lack of knowledge. Your problem is a, is a soul issue. Paul says you've already been enriched in every way. all speech, and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. We'll find out in the rest of the book. They had been given, as the church in Corinth, uniquely, a big batch of specific gifts, signs, wonders, tongues, prophecies, discernment, special knowledge, all these kinds of things. Wow, is that supposed to be our practice and expectation? No. The church at Corinth was operating during a time when the canon of Scripture was not yet closed. And they were operating in a deep, dark piece of enemy territory. Twelve pagan temples in Corinth. Six hundred something thousand people, most of which were sailors or slaves. It was a debauched place. So Paul's going, you've you've taken those things that were to confirm Christ and you've used them to pit yourself against others. Oh, that's real cute. You speak in tongues and all. Yes, but I have the gift of whatever. Or I can do this, but you can't. And they started completely trying to elevate and separate and create this hierarchical structure within the church. That's crazy. That would never happen in our day and age. Whoops. That's what starts to happen. So that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait, verse 7, for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have been given everything you need. As you wait, what's the point? To wait well together for second advent. Christ has come, Christ will come again. Christ is come, Christ will come again. Christ is come, Christ will come again. And so one of the things that the Society of Grace does is wait well together and invite others to join. Because we have received grace, we want God to do this for others. Verse 8, this Christ who will sustain you to the end, and verse 8 is one of these marvelous little play on words. He says, who will sustain you to the end guiltless. Now, there's a little bit of a cleverness here that makes sense of the way Paul writes this. We've been talking about being called, being called, being called. Paul says he will sustain you. That's true. He will. He does. He does the work. It's not the best translation. It's a technical term. It's a governmental term. It's bino in Greek. Christ will confirm you. He will certify you. It's like the word that they would use for a notary public. He will stamp you. Press hard. Third copy yours. That's what Christ will do for you, for you when he returns so that you will be guiltless. Now, this is a little bit tricky. It's a thing with a twist and a triple lindy back gainer. All right. Paul says, so that you will be guiltless, because we don't know how to not translate that. The word is not called. (laughs) You've been called, I was called, Sosthenes was called, and Christ will stamp you, certify you, confirm you, so that you will not be not called. It's a little bit of a play. See, you are guilty, You have been found guilty. But when the redeemed have their names called, yours will be shouted over the cosmos. And when the names are called for those who deserve judgment and the the wrath and the fury of God, when those names are called, you will be not called. That's the gospel. Now, I know it's hard to pick all that up in that one little verse, verse 8. He will stamp you so that you will be not called because you've been called. He's stamping you with himself to protect you from himself. Because when he comes to judge the nations, <laughs> you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. It's a severe deal. Verse 9, God is faithful. God has always been what and like he is. He can't change. He can't ungod himself. God is faithful by whom you were called. You were summonsed into this. This is not a conversation about predestination. Election. No, 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 no. It's not the point. The point is it's, this is God's doing because he's so good and he's called to himself a society of grace. God is faithful by whom you were called into the <laughs> fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's not about making an offering and having fellowship with Aphrodite. Don't you understand? You who've been called in to have fellowship with Jesus, and he's made the way, and the church is the society of grace. All right, so what are we supposed to do with all this? Let me just very quickly give a couple, a few little portable principles to help us remember something from this introductory passage. The church is the society of grace, and so point number one goes like this. You are summoned to be a saint, Maybe you know that about yourself. Maybe you think that about yourself. But if not, let this be that day when you begin to. You are summoned to be a saint. The king of the cosmos has issued a decree and a summons to you and to me. It's amazing. In the same way that in Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. And before he got to the GHT, light had taken off across the cosmos. And in the same way, with equal darkness, You remember the story of Mary Magdalene? She was the the dark, void, chaotic cosmos. And Jesus said, Mary. (laughs) And she exploded in life. And the same thing has happened with you and with me. We say this all the time at this campus, to our elders and to our deacons. I don't know how you think you got to be an elder or a deacon, but the scripture makes it clear that his spirit moved in and around you. He called you to do this. He anointed you and he appointed you for this. And the same is true for you and your salvation. You and I are not the smartest people in the room that merely agreed with some philosophical teaching or a batch of moral and religious ideologies. No, no, no. God the Father has been moving throughout history And he's given you and me to his son, a prized possession, a particular people. And those whom he has given to Christ, none shall ever snatch out of his hand. That's from John 6. It's like Christ has us in his hand and in his heart. And then the the spirit sort of strengthens that hand as though that were possible. And then the father puts his hand over all of that. That's where you've been gotten to. Can you lose your salvation? Well, sure, just as soon as Jesus sins. Short of that, you are everlasting. You are eternal. You are a member of the society of grace. We've not merely been invited to go to heaven one day when we die. No, we've been summoned to have fellowship with God himself now and reflect that light to a dark and dying world. We say it all the time, we are from the future. This is why our marriages are so super central in the world and in our church. According to Paul, when he's dealing with the church universal, our marriages are the greatest declaration and demonstration of the gospel. That's what he says. That's that's the whole purpose of marriage in this life is to demonstrate how God binds himself to us through the Son, when I have done premarital counseling with many of you here and certainly in the next service, I'll always say, listen, my client, my focus is not you and it's not you. It's this third thing. It's the marriage itself. That's my focus. That's what I want to pastor now. Instead, I'll, I'll have people come back five years, 10 years, 30 years later, and they'll say, well, we made a vow before God and our families, and we we're going to stick it out because that honors God and our families. And I'm just praying that she dies first, because it's a big insurance policy. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's really a gospel giving right there. Sure enough, is that? What? No, no, you didn't just make a vow to share a mailing address and a tax filing status. You made a vow before God to have fellowship with one another, even though I know it feels like dying. Ask Susan. He made a vow before God to have fellowship. And this is the vow that Christ made before his God to have fellowship with us. And so when I just preach for a moment, when I hear people say, I get it, I got it, I'm going to heaven one day when I die, I have no need of the church. Read your Bible. You were summoned to fellowship with Jesus and you do not get the groom without the bride. I'm preaching. In the same way, God has summoned us to have fellowship with him and to enjoy and experience him in this life now. And that's what this world needs. Number two, the church is God's idea. It wasn't just a bunch of people back in 1982. It wasn't just a bunch of dudes in Jerusalem in AD two. No, the church is God's idea. And all of his ideas are the best one, I suppose, but the church is really, really good. I kind of think it might be his best other than the gospel itself. I hope you heard that in the opening greeting from the Apostle Paul and from the overarching narrative of Scripture. The church has always been God's idea, even if we couldn't quite see it clearly in the Old Testament. That promised Abraham in Genesis 15 to be a blessing to all nations. And we, can't, we can look back now and see that God was going to do that all along, ultimately through the church. God always wanted a society of grace that would be in Christ and that would be a royal priesthood that would mediate between God and man all over the world. The church and the church age is the last age on God's schedule of redemption. That's it. This is what he's doing. It's the last one. He has been moving through history to this point, and our privilege is to wait well for our King and Christ to return, literally, so that we be with him and one another forever. Yeah, there's a lot of other other illustrations like this for the church. What is the church? Well, it's like a hospital or it's a battleship. But the biblical truth is that the church is a society of grace through which God loves the people that are a part of it. And so we get to think and feel and act like that's true because it is with gratitude. Third, the local church is the hope of the world. I'm not saying you shouldn't be involved in governmental or civic or community programs. Go for it. Knock yourselves out. Please go. Go but it is the local church that is the hope of the world. I, I'll often hear people ask, either in cynicism or in desperation, why won't God do something? He has. <laughs> oh, 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 He has. He has sent His Son, and He has sent His Spirit to be His literal presence in the world, a preview of coming attractions when Christ will one day literally and legally and logistically rule the world from Jerusalem. Until that time, we redeemed time travelers because we're from the future, we expand, extend, and express his kingdom ethic by example, not on social media or epic political burns on the TikToks, Tom. No, no. We extend and express it to a world that is dark and desperate and dying for life and love and light. The church is the society of grace. So God will use the church to model what he did. He will compel us to give unmerited favor as unobligated givers. And we will trust him to summons them to himself. See, Jesus, he loves the church. In fact, he he died for it. He'll return for it. He energizes it. I haven't mentioned yet the church. The big fancy fun Greek word is ekklesia, the called out ones, a group of people that are called out of their context to represent the one that called them out of their context, to be exhibitions of grace. What will certainly come to pass in the future, our future history, gets to be the order of the day today because of what Christ has accomplished in the past. According to the will of the Father and the energizing of the Spirit, it's an eternally glorious thing. So I invite each of us to bask in and celebrate your church, God's church, and be thankful. This grace really is amazing. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to open up this letter. We pray, God, that you would use it throughout the time we spend in it to touch us, teach us, and transform us. Father, I pray that you would reach the hearts of anyone in this room or in the following service who do not know you, who are still operating in darkness and chaos, that you would move by your Spirit and lead them into light and life and love. And for the rest of us, Father, would you reinvigorate our heart for our church Remind us of how much your son loves his church and that we would likewise. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.